Acts chapter 20 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. I'm going to read from Acts 20, several verses. And while you're turning your Bible, you might want to grab this green sheet that's in your bulletin. It's got a lot of other verses written on it that we're also going to look at in the course of our walking through this passage. Um, So Acts 20, and I'm going to start reading in verse 2. Acts 20, verse 2. Uh, I was not here last week. He was. I'm not sure if it was announced, but in addition to the Wilsons being here and members of the Lehman family, it's good to see Tyler Kramlick here with us. I'm not sure if you were introduced last week or not, but it's good to see you. Uh, Todd's uh, parents, of course, serve right now. They're in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and Debbie will be with us next week. She'll do a brief ministry presentation in our service. So Tyler's free from his mother for one more week, and then it's all over. So, but it's good to see you here. All right, Acts 20, verse 2. This is what Scripture says. He traveled through that area, the Apostle Paul did, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Verse 13, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assis, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assis, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and from the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Now, I'm not sure it's very wise uh, in 2015 to start an exposition of God's word by showing you a very old photograph that flashes and then disappears, but that's what I want to do. Here's a picture. It's about 130 years old. The man who's in it is 63. The picture was taken in 1885. Some of you might recognize this picture. Some of you might have seen it at various uh, times in your life. It's difficult as we look at it to see when this picture was taken. Uh, He's sitting on the porch outside, so it probably wasn't in the winter, but he's bundled up like he is. 
isn't he? That hat on and the the blanket wrapped around his head. I don't know if it was the wind blowing from his right. Need a little wind screen. Uh, the reason that he's so bundled up, even though he's sitting outside, is because he's dying. He's got cancer. And this picture was taken a few months before he died. Well, I wonder if you know who he is. His name is Ulysses S. Grant, Civil War general and 18th president of the United States. Ulysses S. Grant, he was born Hiram Ulysses Grant. That's his birth name, but he realized when he was 18 and he was going off to West Point that if his initials were from the name Hiram Ulysses Grant, his footlocker would say hug on it, and he did not think that was very manly for a U.S. soldier to have the initials hug on his footlocker, so he changed his name to the very masculine, very patriotic U.S. Grant. Well, um, after he was president, his term ended in 1877, U.S. Ulysses Grant took his wife, Julia, they went on a world tour, and when he came back, he was a little bit strapped for cash. This was before the days where you could go make millions on the speech circuit as a former president, and he did not have very much money. Uh, which is okay because in 1881 he started an investment firm. He was kind of the figurehead. It was an investment firm that he started with his son, Ulysses Simpson Grant II, and uh, his partner, Ferdinand Ward. The investment firm went really well. With Grant's reputation, his name on the business, people were investing and investing until 1884 when they figured out that Ward had been using the investment firm as a Ponzi scheme. And instead of actually investing the money in any projects, he was investing it into his vacation home and his very nice wardrobe. So in May of 1884, the business closed and Grant was again, his reputation was on the verge of falling apart and financially they were just destitute. When a man came to the rescue, a man whose name you recognize, I'm sure, he opened, had recently opened a publishing house and the man's name was Samuel Clemens, or Mark Twain. And Mark Twain came to U.S. Grant, his friend, and said, I've got a great idea. You can raise some money. Why don't you write your memoirs? And Grant started writing. He wrote and wrote and wrote. For 11 months, he wrote every day. Some days, he wrote 50 pages of his memoirs. And, and as his condition deteriorated, he kept writing and writing and writing. Some days he, his pain was so bad from the cancer he had that he desperately needed pain medicine, but he knew it would cloud his mind, so he refused to take it and continued to write and write and write and write. And five days after he finished the last lines, he died, July 23rd, 1885. Now, why did he do it? Why was Grant after this? Grant was after this for the money. Not for himself, though, because he wasn't going to live to use the money, but it was for his family. This was the one way that he could imagine that he could raise money for his wife and for his children, and it worked, actually, spectacularly. Uh, they sold the book. Mark Twain was a, a brilliant publicist. And, and over the next 10 years, Grant's wife, Julia, received $450,000, or about $10 million today, in royalties from the sale of this book. Um, I want to think with you about this dying man for just a minute this morning, because his work was driven by the fact, the certainty, that there was a limit, that, that his ability to provide for his family was limited. The end was coming, and to care for them, he had to provide. 
We just read together a passage of Scripture, too, that focuses our attention on a character who is also facing a deadline. The character is Paul. And for Paul, his deadline is his arrival in Jerusalem. This is one of the major turning points in the book of Acts. So I'm going to spend a few minutes talking to you about how this plot is unfolding, Paul and his trip to Jerusalem. Now, Acts 20, verse 2, begins Paul's departure from Ephesus. Paul's been in Ephesus. Do you remember this? His third missionary journey. He was in the city of Ephesus, and by all accounts, these two and a half, uh, three years or so, were among the most successful of Paul's ministry. Um, you can see that in, in the reports in Acts 19 that describes it. Look, look at verse uh, 10, Acts 19.10. This went on, Paul's teaching, for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Well, that's wonderful. Look at verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Oh, that's great. Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Look at these summaries speaking about Paul's fruitful ministry in Ephesus. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, of what happened in Jerusalem. Do you remember in, in the beginning of Acts, there's summaries every now and then where the apostles kept preaching and 2,000 people get saved or 3,000 people repent. Or these, these summaries of the growing of the church. What's happening here is that Paul is experiencing in Ephesus what Peter and John and the rest of the apostles had experienced in Jerusalem. Ephesus is the new Jerusalem as we move through this book. And his ministry was coming to a close, so he decided to go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 21 of Acts 19. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, after I have been there, he said, I must also visit Rome. Now, uh, think about here for a minute the extent of the vision that the Apostle Paul has. I, w- I want to show you this from the, from the book of Romans, how far Paul envisions the gospel going, what his, his vision is. Look, I want to read to you from Romans chapter 15. It's all written down there from verses 23 through 29. Paul wrote this book of Romans probably while he was in Greece, uh, Acts 20, verse 3. That's where he wrote Romans from. And look what it says, Acts uh, Romans 15, it's on the, the green sheet. Look, but now there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received their contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Look at Paul's vision here. How, how does Paul think about the world? He's going uh, to Jerusalem in the east, and he's thinking all the way about Spain, the farthest western reaches of the Roman Empire. Paul wants the gospel there, even there. 
Look at how broad his vision is. Uh, John Stott quotes another commentator named Bengal. He said this, No Alexander the Great, no Caesar, no other hero approaches to the large-mindedness of this little Benjamite. Of course, Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. The word Paul means little. (laughs) This little Benjamite, his vision, see how far he sees the gospel. It reminds me of Robert Moffat. You know the name Robert Moffat was a 19th century missionary to Africa. And he once wrote... In the va- he said this, In the vast plains of the north, I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. And Robert Moffat said to himself, I, I want to go there. Somebody needs to go there and tell the people about Jesus from all these villages. You know, one of the ways that you can tell that you're getting the message of the book of Acts, one of the ways that you're really, this book is really changing you and you can tell is the way that you look at maps or the, the way that you listen to news stories. You, you look at a map or you hear about some far-flung country in the news and you wonder to yourself, is the gospel there? I wonder if the gospel's there. wonder who, who is representing Jesus there like he told us to. What's What's next? Is there, is there somebody there representing Christ? Paul has that big of a vision. And he's going to Jerusalem first, though. Now, why? Well, Romans 15 gave us a reason, and it? told us Paul has been taking an offering, and he wants to take the money to Jerusalem. For his fellow believers, they've been suffering under a famine. Now, it's interesting that Luke makes no mention of the offering really here in this chapter, but that's one of the reasons he's going. Uh, Look over at Acts 20, though, verse 22. I didn't read it, but look what he says, Acts 20, verse 22. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Well, he's got money to take. He is compelled by the Spirit, and chapter 19, he had decided to go. And Acts 20 and 21 is the story of Paul's journey. It's a bit of a travel log. You see that in all those names of the cities that I ruined so terribly when I pronounced them? Um, Paul is he's traveling from city to city on the way to Jerusalem. It's interesting. We, uh, if we were to get out our maps, we won't do that now, but if we were to get out our maps and look, all these little cities are, are all along the coast of Asia. What's happening is uh, Paul is sailing. He's, t- he's doing day sails. The wind would rise in the morning, and they would sail along the coast. And uh, it was dangerous to sail near those reefs at night. So uh, in the afternoon, the wind would die, and the sun would go down. So you'd, you'd park, huh, park, dock, uh, anchor, and uh, uh, then he would go into the cities and then come back out the next day before the ship would leave. 35 to 40 miles a day, they'd travel along the coast this way. Paul is traveling back. And what I want you to see here is that, that Luke is casting this story so that we see that Paul is following the pattern of the Lord Jesus. He's going to Jerusalem just like Jesus went to Jerusalem. Look with me. I think I printed out Luke 9.51. Oh, I lost my note sheet. There it is. Did I print it out? I did. Look, Luke 9.51. This is a turning point in the book of Luke. You might not have noticed this before, but this is a very important verse here. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And what happens here in the book of Acts is that 
Luke places Paul alongside Jesus, both of them going to Jerusalem. Very important point and and plot turning in the book. They're not identical journeys, but they're very similar. Uh, John Stott, again, I'll refer to him. He points out some of the parallels. Both Jesus and Paul, as they traveled to Jerusalem, were accompanied by uh, by disciples. You remember verse 4, those names? Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. Um, The the names and the the places show how broad Paul's ministry is, how united this church is across nationalities and ethnicities and locations. These men, it seems like they have come as representatives from all these churches. All these churches in these towns have given money to the offering, and they're traveling with Paul to make sure the money is distributed uh, with integrity in Jerusalem. But, you know, this list reminds me of other lists in the Gospels. Does does it remind you of lists like uh, there was... Uh, Matthew and Peter and John and James. Does it remind you of the disciples' lists that Jesus had? Both Paul and Jesus, as they go to Jerusalem, are plotted against by the Jews. You know about the plots against Jesus from the Gospels, but verse 3 is the plot against Paul. Some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. In the ancient world, because Jews were required, the men, Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year for festivals. If there were a lot of Jews in a particular city, they would charter a ship, a pilgrim ship, and they would all get the Mayflower. No, not that pilgrim. They, they were uh, uh, festival ships, and they would get on these ships, all of them, and they'd charter the boat to take them to Jerusalem so they could sail together to the festival. And apparently Paul had bought a ticket on one of these ships except he heard this plot. They were going to take and one night throw him overboard in the Mediterranean, these Jews that were opposed to his message. So uh, the plot comes and he decided to go back through Macedonia. It's a lot safer on land than in a ship of people who want you dead. So a Paul and Jesus both threatened. Uh, Both Paul and Jesus on the way to Jerusalem either made or received three predictions about what would happen to them. Jesus made their predictions himself. He said to his disciples, everything that was written about the Son of Man in the prophets is about to happen. He told them that. It's a very important plot point in all of the Gospels, these revelations. Look, though, at Acts 21, verse 10. Here's one of the prophecies about Paul. Acts 21, verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. We're going to, Lord willing, talk about that prophecy in a few weeks. Jesus and Paul, they went with their disciples. They were plotted against. There were prophecies made about them. Jesus and Paul, both as they moved to Jerusalem, expressed their willingness to lay down their lives. They're both determined to fulfill their ministries. Both of them are abandoned to the will of God. They're going to Jerusalem. Now, why is this parallel in the text? Why is this here? I think it's a reminder of the fact that Jesus really does call his people to follow him on the Calvary Road. This is what Paul is doing. He's imitating Jesus. You should have no expectation that following Jesus will bring you fame or wealth or security or comfort. 
It is not the path to an easy life. Jesus does not call us to follow him on Main Street USA and Walt Disney World. He calls us to the Calvary Road. This is a strange observation to make, I think, because sometimes in our culture, uh, following Jesus seems to be a way to lead to wealth or fame or popularity. When I was in high school here, the high point of the Christian contemporary music movement, there were rumors by those that were involved in it that, that um, some of the people who were our, that we, we listened to and we loved to hear, they, they wanted to be secular musicians, but they just weren't good enough, so they decided that if they sang Jesus music, they could sell a lot more albums. Hmm. You can make a name for yourself as a, as a Christian author or pastor or music star or celebrity, but that is so rare. It's so incredibly rare in the history of Christianity. Every now and then I see a, a Facebook post uh, comparing Michael Sam and Tim Tebow. If you follow the NFL, you should um, know both of them. You're, you're somewhat familiar, I'm sure, with, with Tim Tebow's reputation as a follower of Christ. Um, maybe he's going to get a chance to play this year for the Eagles. That's a surprise to me. I didn't know you could be a Christian and cheer for the Eagles, let alone play for them. But, <laughs> but we'll let that go. Uh, Michael Sam, on the other hand, is the first gay player to be drafted into the NFL. The Rams drafted him a couple years ago. He was cut from the roster. Then he played for the Dallas Cowboys practice team, and now he plays professional football in Canada. Uh, Michael Sam has won the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, which uh, Caitlyn Jenner also won. He was one of GQ's Men of the Year, and he was a finalist for Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year probably the only person to be cut from the roster of an NFL team without actually ever playing a game to receive that award. Now, I've seen Facebook posts about, about these men wondering why one is a great hero and is honored and the other is largely in um, many media sources vilified. Why is one told to be proud and outspoken and the other is told to keep his opinions to himself because we just don't want to hear it anymore? Following Jesus faithfully is never a guarantee of an easy, comfortable, well-lauded life. It is an anomaly. It is completely strange that consistently one of the most admired men in America would be an evangelist. Billy Graham would make that list like he does. It's just odd. It's strange. The Calvary Road is not where people go to be admired. That's not our calling. When Jesus was talking about following him, he said that there is a broad way. Many people travel on it. In contrast to the broad way, he calls people to the narrow road. There are two paths, two ways to go. We are born naturally inclined toward one way, towards the broad way. It's the way of wandering from our creator, the way of of being a sheep that has gone astray. We who are made to enjoy this close and fruitful relationship with our creator we have rejected it you reject it every time that you live for yourself and the bible calls that rebellion sin and it has disastrous consequences our our disconnect from the creator is what sets our world off its center its uncertainty and wobbliness it's a wandering from god that he will one day decisively end with stunning justice my, my in-laws, we were in Buffalo this past week, 
and my in-laws have out in front of their house a, a, a storm drain, a sewer drain. And in front of the sewer drain, uh, because of you know freezing and the snow and the ice that they get, there's a terrible pothole right in front of it. I think if you fell into it, you could have rice for dinner. I mean, it's just really deep. Like, it's just it's deep. So um, that probably was not appropriate. <laughs> anyway, so what happened was they, uh, to solve the problem, uh, the uh, works department put an orange cone out in front. It's an orange cone right in front of the sewer drain. Wonderful. I said to my in-laws, I said, how long has that orange cone been there? Long time. It's a solution to the problem. Cones solve all problems. Warn people away from it. You wonder, when, when are they going to come and fix this? It's interesting, you know, even in the New Testament, when Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and... and uh, there, there he, he sits and he, he's waiting and there's people, even in the New Testament era, began to wonder, when is he going to come back? When is he going to come back and fix this broken world? It's been 2,000 years. When's, when's he going to come back and fix what's broken? One of the things that Peter says is, oh, his coming back is certain and sure. He's going to come back with stunning stunning, complete justice. And, and every day he doesn't come back, Peter says, oh, it's a, day. it's a day of his patient mercy waiting for people to repent. Every day you wake up and you see the sun, this beautiful day that we have today, you, you look in the sky and you say, oh, his mercies are new every morning. Today, new mercies. And today... Today, as another chance, maybe my sister will turn and become a follower of Jesus today because today's another day of God's patient mercy, waiting for you to turn to him. Jesus calls us to this narrow road. Walking on it is made possible by his own work. He who has come and did what no other human being could do, he obeyed his father perfectly, and then he offered himself as our impeccable sacrifice, our perfect substitute for the sake of love offered for us, and he offers life and forgiveness to all who will receive it by faith, who will turn to make this conscious decision of dependence on him. And he calls us to the narrow road. It it's a different road. It's not hard to understand how walking on this road will bring its own isolation and reproach. So why would we do it? It's because it's Jesus' road. I, I'm sure some of you are more immersed into the, the world of um, J.R.R. Tolkien than I am, but one of my, my favorite characters from those stories is Samwise Gamgee. Samwise Gamgee, of course, is sidekick. In fact, he's, he's literature's greatest sidekick, some people say. He, he, Frodo Baggins has been called on this, this great mission, and Samwise Gamgee is going with him, and he's going for the sake of friendship, for the sake of loyalty, because of the excellence he sees in Frodo Baggins. Now, the comparison is not perfect because there's times when Frodo Baggins is so weak, Samwise Gamgee has to carry him. That's never the case with us. But why are we on this road? Because of all the excellence that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the risen Lord who is also our shepherd, who cares for us. We follow, we're after him, him. Paul is on this same road 
the same road that Jesus walked to Jerusalem. That's the limit that he is facing. And, and these are the last few months of ministry, free ministry, that the apostle will enjoy in the book of Acts. When Grant faced the end, he wrote his memoirs to provide for his family. When Paul faced the end, what did he do? I suppose, actually more important, the question is, what do you do? I want to I take this question, I want to ask this question of you this morning, not because you are facing Jerusalem like Paul or death like Grant, But this text provides us with an opportunity to ask this question, these good questions. What does Paul do with those under his care? What do you do with those under your care? I phrase it like that because it's actually part of our church covenant, isn't it? We will bring up those who are under our care at any time, bring up those who are under our care at any time, those in the nurture. We will bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We made promises to each other. Every time I read that covenant to you, I am saying, uh, this is what I intend to do. And I'm giving you the right, in fact, I'm inviting you to question and challenge what I do with those that are under my care. And you've done that too when you read that covenant. What did Paul do? Well, simply put, Paul gave himself to teaching. He gave himself to teaching, to encouraging, to instructing, to guiding and speaking. There are two clear indicators of that in the text. Uh, Look at verse 2. It says, he traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people. Many words of encouragement. This is how Luke summarizes what might be up to 18 months. This is an 18-month journey summarized in these few words. He gave many words of encouragement. Now, I don't want to be distracted too much from this text, but there's something that I want to show you that happens right here, and it relates to the book of 2 Corinthians. I love to see how the epistles fit into the puzzle of the book of Acts. Um, And look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, it mentions Troas here. So this is Paul's writing this when he's at Troas. He wrote this letter to uh, the Corinthians. He wrote them a very confrontational letter, a very difficult letter. And, and he was supposed to, Titus went to take the letter. He was supposed to meet up with Titus in Troas to find out how they responded to the letter. Look at 2 Corinthians 2.12. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind. Isn't that interesting? Paul turns away the opportunity to do new ministry in a city because he's so concerned about what's happening in Corinth. That's fascinating. Because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. He's looking for Titus. He wants to know what's happening in Corinth. Then, look what happens in 2 Corinthians 7, 5-7. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever." Let me just for a moment give you a clue about how to read 2 Corinthians. Did you notice that you could read right from 2 Corinthians 2.13 all the way over to 2 Corinthians 7.5 without missing a beat? Which means that 2 Corinthians 2.14 to 2 Corinthians 7.4 is the largest parenthesis in the New Testament. 
This is massive parenthesis. And uh, then Paul, finally, he picks up the thought that he had about going to Macedonia. That's what's happening during this time. He's traveling around, giving uh, words of encouragement. He's teaching, training, and correcting, cheering on, all these things encompassed by encouragement. That ministry actually of teaching is even more clear in what happens in verse 7. Verse 7 is the first reference to the early Christians meeting together on the first day of the week that we have in the New Testament. They, they marked the resurrection on the first day of the week. That's why they met there. Uh, some scholars say this is a great uh, apologetic for the resurrection. These were faithful Jews who always worshipped on seven, day seven, the Sabbath, and now they're worshipping together on day one, resurrection day. This is astounding. Jesus must have really risen from the dead for them to change like this. They meet in the evening because it's the first day of the week and they all have to work. So they go to work, and then after work they meet together with the Apostle Paul. And the text says that he spoke. Um, That word means um, lecture, seminar, answering and asking questions, a lot of talking. Remember what the church does in Acts 2. They devote themselves to the Apostles' teaching. Here is a church that is devoted to the Apostles' teaching. And he spoke until midnight. Woo! He didn't start at like 10.30 and speak till midnight, so that's good. But that's long. And there were lamps in the upstairs room, which means what? It was hot, and the air was maybe a little thin. And, And seated in this window was this man named Eutychus. The text says a young man. He may have been a young teenager. He's got a window seat, fresh air coming in, but he falls asleep instead. He just... The text doesn't blame him at all for it. There's no, it, it just, he was overcome. He just couldn't stay awake. Just can't help it. And he falls to his death out the window. Do you know what the name Eutychus means? <laughs> lucky. <laughs> so Lucky falls out of the window. Warren Wearsby calls him the first church dropout. <laughs> so he falls three stories to the ground and he dies, which caused quite a commotion. Right? This is quite the interruption. So Paul stops, he runs downstairs where he throws himself on Eutychus. Now that should remind you of Elijah and Elisha who also threw themselves on young men. Raises him from the dead, which should remind you of Jesus and Peter, right? Elisha, Elijah, Peter, Paul, Jesus. This is an elite squad. Now what happens next here? Paul goes back to teaching, until dawn. I, that, does that strike anybody else as normal, right? He stands up and says, now, where was I? Let me start again. <laughs> if I ever raise somebody from the dead, I'm not going back to what I was doing. I don't expect to do that, by the way. This is astounding to me. This reminds me a little bit of uh, John Calvin. John Calvin was a pastor, of course, in Geneva, well-known reformer, great pastor and Bible teacher, and he was fired Uh, There were conflicts between him. He was leading the church. He had been hired by the town. Conflict between him and the the people running the town. So they fired him. I I don't remember the exact passages, but let's let's imagine here. The Sunday, that Sunday before they fired him, he was in Ezekiel 33, 15. They fire him, so he leaves. He's gone for a number of months. I can't remember exactly how long, maybe a couple years. They realize their mistake. They hired John Calvin back. John Calvin, the first Sunday back, he ascends the pulpit, and you've got to think, everybody in the church is wondering, what is he going to say? I told you so, 
You know, I mean, how, how is he going to let them have it for what happened to him? <laughs> he stands up and he says, as you will remember last time we were in Ezekiel 33:15, and today we're going to be in Ezekiel 33:16." See, John Calvin was communicating something very carefully when he did that. He was communicating to them, it's not about John Calvin, it's not about the drama, it's not about your town leaders, it's about God's word and the teaching of it. So Paul, maybe there's, there may be in this passage a third scene of Paul teaching. I don't know. I'm not sure. But in verse 13, it says, we went, on, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed from Essos where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. Now, why would Paul travel by foot when he would send his co-workers by ship? And one thought is, that there were along this path, it was a more dangerous, difficult path, but there were small churches that Paul wanted to visit and teach. You go by boat, I'll walk, and I'm going to meet with these churches, and I'll meet you there. What does an apostle do when he's faced with a deadline? He teaches, he teaches, he teaches. I wonder what role teaching and encouraging play and how you care for those in your charge the people that are under you, those you are mentoring or teaching, the children you're raising, the spouse you're leading. This is a crucial part of it, which is probably not news to you, is it? It's probably not news to you because that's why people come to our church often. They, They want to be taught the Bible. It's something that we love in our congregation. But maybe this text is open before us this morning by the Spirit's appointment so that I can tell you this again, so that I can remind this of you, that that, that I can encourage you to consider how effectively, more effectively, with greater diligence and focus or attention, you can give yourself to this. Remember, we promised. We promised one another that we will bring up those whom at any time may be under our care and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We have promised one another, brothers and sisters. I want to finish this morning by suggesting to you two ways that you can live out this calling. Two ways. First of all, model your own need for encouragement. Model before them the fact that you know that you need this sort of encouragement. It's not very manly, I know, to talk about need. Men don't need anything, right? Manly men don't. Except that there's this persistent call in the Bible for encouragement. You need it to follow Christ faithfully. God has not made you an independent operator. I'm sure at some point in time you have seen one of those videos, a documentary maybe about grizzly bears. Of course, grizzly bears, they spend their time, part of their season on the river hunting. Well, they're fishing, actually. Salmon swimming upstream in, in Washington State. And they jump and leap over, over uh, uh, waterfalls and over rapids. They're going. Now, why are they going up? They're going upstream to spawn. And instinct takes them against the flow of the river. It's their instinct that's driving them to go. You're called to swim upstream too, but you don't go by instinct. In fact, most of your natural instincts are to turn around and swim with the current away. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You need this. You need this sort of encouragement. And I wonder if those under your care see that in you and they recognize that in you and they know 
Do your kids know that you need God's word? Do your kids know that you need people to encourage you, an accountability partner, somebody to help you follow Christ? Does your, do the, the children in your Sunday school class or your Awana club, do they know that you need to be memorizing the Bible like they are? Do they see that in you and know that about you? That you have within you and you're aware of it, this pre-programmed deficiency? James Michener turned in his novel, Alaska. This massive, James Michener, of course, write, wrote huge books. It was a massive book. It was over a thousand pages. And, and uh, uh, his publisher said, this is too long. So he took out one whole section of the book and it became a separate book. It's the shortest book that James Michener wrote. It was a chapter for one of his other books. Well, it's a story of a man whose name is Lord Luton. And Lord Luton is a pompous British lord who is determined to travel through Canada to the Yukon in the 1800s to the gold rush. He was pompous. He wouldn't take anyone's advice. And apparently it was a family trait because his nephew, Philip, shared this same uh, characteristic. So Luton and his team were getting together their supplies in British Columbia to go through British Canada to the gold fields. It was going to be a hard, dangerous trip through the winter, through frozen lands, over rivers. And Philip found what he thought would be a perfect pair of boots. It was a pair of rubber boots to keep his feet warm and dry. And wise experts said, don't get those boots. He said, they'll be perfect. I'll, I'll be dry if I get these, if I have these boots. And because my feet will be dry, they'll be warm. In fact, those boots were dangerous. They killed him. They were traveling down a river one time through a very uh, rough part of the river. Philip was tossed into the water and his boots filled with water and it dragged him to the bottom and he drowned. See, your willingness to seek out and receive and and uh, listen to the encouragement that God built into the Christian life is a reflection of how you see yourself. If you're sure you don't need the help, if you're sure you can make it on your own, if you are confident that your judgment is better than anyone else's, be prepared for your vanity to be revealed and expect it to hurt those that are under your care. Paul spoke for what must have been 10 hours here, and everybody stayed and listened because they knew they needed it. Now second here, incorporate spiritual nourishment into your life as much as you can. Incorporate spiritual nourishment into your life as much as you can. Remember, I will remind you what Deuteronomy 6 says. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, everywhere in your life talking about what God has done, injecting his work into your conversations. You, it should be natural and normal for you to sit under a shade tree with your kids and say, isn't God good to make this tree and the lovely sun today? It's this, this food that we have prepared for us. God gives us our daily bread, and here it is. It's, it's amazing. Uh, ask your kids 
talk about them, about what they observed in the service on Sunday mornings, what they liked, what they learned, what they sang. You know, in the fall when we start this new gospel project curriculum, everybody's going to be studying the same topic, the same passage every Sunday, and you can talk about that together when you get home. It'll be great. Share with them observations about what you're learning, what you're talking about with your accountability group, what you're praying about, what you're studying, what you heard on the radio. Find some good books to read together with your wife. We are constantly in our house on the, look for, uh, on the lookout for good books. We find a lot of them. Where else can you in other places in your life incorporate talking to them about the care of the Lord Jesus? Remember, this is one of the ways that we fulfill the commission that Jesus gave us. He told us to testify about him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But he also wants to testify about him to the people who live down the hall. <laughs> those you see at the breakfast table, or those who walk into your classroom every week. I hope that our church has an effect, has a great effect on people because we pray and we give living 3,000 miles away. I hope that is true of us. I hope you're positively impacting those who are sitting three feet away from you right now. Ulysses S. Grant, he's writing, he's writing, he's writing. One of the ways that Mark Twain publicized this book is that he said that this is the book that killed Grant. It hastened his death, probably. By Grant's memoirs, they're the last words he wrote, they're very interesting. It's a sign of his devotion for the care of his family. When you take up Paul's model here, though, you express your commitment not just to your family, but also to the mission that Jesus gave us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for this this story, this seemingly random travel log of the Apostle Paul going from place to place on his way to Jerusalem. Lord, we, we thank you that he models for us this commitment in every congregation he visited to the apostles' doctrine and teaching. Lord, I thank you for your grace in our own congregation that this is the desire and expectation of the members of our church. Lord, I do pray, though, that you would work in us greater fervency to the the promises that we have made to one another that, that you call us to nurture and admonition of those that are under our care. Lord, help us, save us from playing games with your word and with the church. That that Sunday is the different day, it's the holy day, it's the day when we do different things that, that have no connection from to Monday to Saturday. Save us from that, we pray. And I ask that you would help me and and all of us to be faithful to this call that you have given, our loyalty to the apostles' teaching, teaching them, as the Lord Jesus said, to obey everything that he has commanded us to do. Do this work in us, Lord, we pray, because we love your word, we love your truth, and we love it because it speaks of your dear son whom we love the most. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.